This is Nursing Australia, proudly brought to you by APNA, the Australian Primary Healthcare Nurses Association. Welcome to Nursing Australia. This is the August 2022 episode and the 46th instalment of the podcast. Now, back on the 24th of February this year, Russia invaded Ukraine. This invasion is internationally considered a war of aggression and is the largest military assault on the European state since World War II. In fact, since 2014, conflict between Russia and Ukraine has been ongoing and finally escalated to an invasion back in February. Now, since earlier this year, it is estimated more than 10,000 people are dead, 25,000 plus injured, and anywhere between 3.5 and 5 million refugees have been displaced as a result of the Ukrainian-Russian conflict. This is considered the largest humanitarian crisis ever faced or attempted to be managed by the European Union. Medicine Sans Frontières, or Doctors Without Borders as we may know it in English, are one of the few select humanitarian organisations who have been granted access to provide healthcare. Organisations such as MSF believe, like us nurses, that all people have the right to medical care regardless of gender, race, religion, creed, political affiliation or age. And that the healthcare needs of individuals outweigh respect for international boundaries and borders. In this episode of Nursing Australia, we meet Kate. Kate works for MSF and has kindly shared her experience with us working as a nurse on the front line in Ukraine. She also shares with us her nursing origin story and how she ended up working for Medicine Sans Frontiers. I actually did two volunteer experiences in Papua New Guinea and in Ethiopia. And I knew that I definitely wanted to continue with this path. MSF seemed like a really good fit for me. One of the hardest things is sometimes feeling helpless. You can provide healthcare, but you can't solve the underlying socioeconomic issues, political issues. Also coming up inside this episode, nurse comedian Georgie Carroll's dropping by with her podcast, The Swab, giving us some very important comic relief. I'm that girl. I'm the girl that got hit in the head with a javelin and lost my eye. This is... <laughs> You're listening to Nursing Australia Inside Ukraine. Let's kick things off with the latest in healthcare news with Mitch Wall. And as always, thank you for listening to Nursing Australia. Aged Care Regulator Review, Monkeypox of National Significance, Keto Diet for Mental Illness and Hep C Treatment and Testing, Waning. This is Nursing Australia News. Hello, I'm Mitch Wall. The Albanese government has announced it will conduct a capability review into the Aged Care Quality and Safety Commission. Minister for Aged Care Annika Wells confirmed that the government would act on the Aged Care Royal Commission recommendation after the former administration had failed to do so. One of the elements of my winter plan for aged care is to boost infection control training for the states. That's something that the federal government can fund. Speaking on ABC's 7.30 program there. Newer vaccines to tackle monkeypox are on their way to Australia to deal with the emergency, but experts warn that currently there is limited supply. Australia's chief medical officer has designated monkeypox to be a disease of national significance. Two vaccines are currently available to prevent the condition. However, Australia has existing supplies of an older vaccine, which is tricky to administer and not suitable for severely immunocompromised people and is associated with rare but serious side effects. The keto diet looks to be becoming a therapy for schizophrenia. A new clinical trial by James Cook University will investigate how changing the body's primary fuel source affects both schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. 100 patients will now be recruited in North Queensland to partake in the ketogenic therapy trial. 
dozens of feral pigs have been spotted roaming around Darwin's outer northern suburbs, prompting concerns over the spread of Japanese encephalitis. Since March this year, the Northern Territory Health Department has identified at least 44 feral pigs infected with the virus across the top end. Hepatitis C can be eliminated in Australia over the next 10 years, but only if people get tested and seek treatment. That's the message of a new Victorian campaign launched by the Burnett Institute and Harm Reduction Victoria. More than 120,000 Australians are estimated to be living with chronic hepatitis C, but testing and treatment rates are declining. You're listening to the Nursing Australia podcast, the show that brings you news, education, powerful interviews, stories from the front line, and experts to share their knowledge with you. My name is Kate. I'm a registered nurse and midwife, and I work for MSF, so Medicines Sans Frontières, also known as Doctors Without Borders and I am currently working with MSF in Ukraine. I actually grew up in remote Australia, a place called Saisia, which is at the very tip of Cape York in far north Queensland. I went to primary school up there, and then I did my high school and university in Cairns. So it was a really nice kind of different upbringing, living in an Indigenous community. I always wanted to be a nurse since I can remember, and I specifically wanted to be a paediatric nurse. So when I finished school, I studied that straight away. And then once I finished my study, just as I planned, I immediately went into paediatric nursing. I worked as a paediatric nurse for five years. I did a master's in child and adolescent health. I worked in both tertiary and rural settings as a paediatric nurse. And then I decided to try something new. So I actually applied for both a transition to intensive care nursing program and midwifery at the same time. I got into both programs, so I had to make a decision and I chose midwifery and I never looked back. I felt like I really found my passion, my calling even more so than nursing. And now I have the best job in the world. I also was always thinking that I would work in developing countries. My first experience working in a developing country was I actually did two volunteer experiences in Papua New Guinea and in Ethiopia. After I did the volunteering, I knew that I definitely wanted to continue with this path. MSF seemed like a really good fit for me, the the work that they were doing in so many different places, and I felt quite aligned with their principles. So I applied to work for them in late 2019 and March 2020 was my first mission and I've been with them ever since. My first contract in Pakistan was just really nice. It went super smooth. I went for six months. I ended up staying for a year. My family was so happy. I was loving it and they were really supportive. And then when I went to my second assignment, I was in Tigray in Ethiopia in a war zone. And it wasn't so smooth. And I think that probably opened their eyes up a bit more to the risk that I was undertaking. I was actually evacuated from Ethiopia. So it was a quite a crazy finish. And then afterwards, I had to tell my mom and my grandma that, okay, next I'm going to Afghanistan in September, just after the takeover from the Taliban government. 
And I wasn't sure how they were going to take it, but all along they've been super supportive and they understand that I'm probably going to go to these places anyway. (laughs) So I definitely think growing up in a remote community kind of opened my eyes to different cultures and different ways of life. And it also really highlighted the disparity of healthcare from a city to a rural or remote area. And I think that ignited a bit of a passion to work in settings where for many different reasons, there are these barriers to accessing healthcare. So I think, yeah, probably the way my parents raised me definitely contributed a lot to why I'm now working for MSF and in these kind of crazy contexts. I have been in Ukraine for five weeks now. I came in early May. I was very keen to come and work in this context. I mean, as the world knows, it's very different to have a war zone or a humanitarian crisis happening in a developed country. I've been based in Kyiv, but I also have been visiting other areas as part of our work doing mobile clinics. So Kyiv is a very beautiful city, lots of history, architecture, And it seems quite normal when you go out. There's people out and about, businesses are open. When we go out to visit areas that surround Kyiv and also we were working in another area called the Chernihiv Oblast, we're visiting areas that were previously occupied and it's very different from the city. First impressions are there's a lot of destruction, damage. Things just aren't as alive as you would expect to see them. Businesses aren't open it's very obvious that there has been, you know, active war and active fighting in these areas. So the Chernihiv Oblast, you could say it's like a state north of Kyiv. We were doing primary healthcare clinics, going to villages affected by the war. Some villages had been occupied with Russian army occupying their village. Others had not been occupied, but they were still affected by war because during the occupation, no supplies could get to that village, like medications, food, hygiene items. So every village had been affected in some way. Now that the areas are no longer occupied, there's still a lot of barriers for these health centres to operate normally. A lot of roads and bridges are destroyed, so trucks can't bring supplies to them. The cost of medication has increased and there's also a fuel crisis. So to transport anything is now very difficult, especially in these areas that are a little bit rural and remote. The majority of villages is an elderly population and so many people with chronic diseases, so for them to be cut off from their medication access for a long time really affected their their primary health care. So the most common presentations are people with hypertension, diabetes, thyroid disease, musculoskeletal disorders, and these are people who haven't been able to take their medication for a number of months. It doesn't seem like a big deal, but of course, if you have hypertension and you don't take your medication for a few months and you're left with high blood pressure for a long time, it increases your risk of stroke. So it it is super important work still. Another huge part of our work is mental health support, which we're doing in our mobile clinics. Many people are experiencing sleep problems, anxiety. There's a real underlying fear that the war is going to come back to that village, to where they live. And so we're seeing a lot of trauma responses related to this. In every context that MSF works, majority of the people working for MSF are locally employed people. So we have a team of psychologists who are Ukrainian who are working with us. 
They're doing uh, a variety of interventions. Sometimes they're doing group sessions with children, individual consults, as well as providing training for community leaders like teachers and the mayor of the village to try and empower them also to be leaders in, in psychological first aid for their communities. We also have a 24-hour hotline for mental health support, which we have advertised around Ukraine. So there's a psychologist on call all the time who can provide over-the-phone support as well. We also do a lot of women's health. We do some contraception. We also offer safe abortion care, care for survivors of sexual violence. And another big part of our work is actually donating items. So a lot of these villages, we're donating hygiene items, donating medical equipment and medications to the primary healthcare centres so they can get up and running again. Very luckily, we have some fantastic translators working with us. It's super helpful and it's really, really lovely to work with the translators, actually. Overall, the the health system is coping super well. Hospitals are working well, staff are working. There have been some donations made of equipment and drugs, but Basically, the the health system in the cities is working as it was pre-war. It's these small villages where they just have a healthcare centre that needs some support and predominantly in the area of primary healthcare. I felt scared in my other contracts with MSF in other environments. I wouldn't say I felt scared here, but definitely aware of the risks. Whilst we're not working in an active war zone right now, there's still remnants of war. So we're very aware of things like landmines. And this kind of security risk is a big thing that you have to think about all day when you're working. Working in these contexts is very life-changing, changes the way you view the world, the way you live your life. The reality is, is that there's a lot of bad experiences as well. And you're seeing a lot of traumatic things and hearing stories from people, which are, you know, it's quite hard to hear, but there's just so many amazing moments as well. For me, I feel quite privileged to be able to go and work in these areas when the population is in such need and to hear the stories of how they cope with what's going on in their countries. I think definitely in any healthcare setting in a developed or developing country, you're exposed to things which can be super sad, traumatic for the person experiencing it, and then traumatic for the healthcare provider as well. There's always a few stories that will really stick in your head. But I think the best thing is that you're not alone. You're with national staff, you're with other expats. And I've found in all my experiences in an MSF there's a very much an openness to talk about what's happening talk about the reality of situations talk about the bad moments the good moments and yeah I think that's super important I do believe that you have to have a certain degree of being able to compartmentalize something and carry on with your job which is the same in any healthcare setting I think probably one of the hardest things is sometimes feeling helpless there's some situations where you know you can provide health care but you can't you know, go back to this woman's home and give her money and food to feed all her kids. You can help her birth her baby safely, but then you can't solve the underlying socioeconomic issues, political issues in countries. And this this is super hard, I think. But great support and just sharing what you hear, what you see is the best thing to do. 
In theory, I'll finish my time in Ukraine mid-August and then actually I won't come back to Australia. I'll take a short break in Europe and then go do another contract from there. I, I did this last year as well. I avoided coming home to hotel quarantine. I'll probably do some short work in Nigeria and Afghanistan doing some midwifery training for national staff as well later in the year. I quite like the lifestyle of going hard, working hard, being in a kind of crazy place for a few months and then being able to have a little bit of time off to decompress and not be committed to another workplace in Australia. So me, I'm super positive. I, I love working for MSF and I recommend it to people regularly, but it is something that you have to consider quite deeply and you need to be super flexible and adaptable. You don't always end up where you think you're going to end up. You don't always end up doing the role that you think you're going to do. But if someone is interested, I would say go for it. Are you a nurse working in primary healthcare and looking for the next step in your career? Or do you work in a hospital and curious about moving into a primary healthcare setting like general practice, aged care or school nursing? Check out the APNA Nursing Jobs page. Powered by Healthcare Link, where you can search jobs near you and filter by setting and speciality. To get to the APNA Nursing Jobs page, click the link in the show notes of this episode. G'day, Nursing Australia. It's Georgie Carroll here, your nursing comedian. I've got a podcast called The Swab. New series out now. I've talked to one shot wonder Kelly Giddings, who I met when a joke I told on stage ended up being her real life story. Here's a sneak peek. The only thing a first aider can do is secure a javelin in an eye socket until the person gets to hospital. And that never happens. Never happens. And then the voice, this very voice you hear today pipes up from the audience. And, like, I'm that girl. I'm the girl that got hit in the head with the javelin and lost my eye. This is an eye. Well, the whole audience loved it. I was gobsmacked and I couldn't keep my mouth shut. Like, I had to say something. Because it never happens. Because it does happen. I know it does. Because me and Laurie have since spent so many hours Googling athletics accidents. Yep. People getting hit by shot putts. People getting hit by javelin. Though there's an excellent one where a kid, I mean, he doesn't lose his eye. He just cries a lot. Yeah. But a kid gets hit with a javelin in the leg. Yep. And yeah, he's fine. So, but I, because I was just reacting instinctively when you said it and I just couldn't stop laughing. (laughs) Well, I couldn't believe that, like, you were telling my story in the show that I was visiting. So, so then after the show, me and Laurie are downstairs and going, oh, because we can't see you when you're in the audience. No, well, I was up on top on the balcony in yeah. the first row and you were looking out down quicker. the low. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Should have bought quicker. So uh, me and Laurie are backstage afterwards and I went, do you reckon that happened? <laughs> we're like, nah, nah. nah. She, she was just a heckler. She, she was just like a, some, yeah, she's just uh, on the on the Savvy Bee and she's just like, yeah, I had a javelin through my head. <laughs> Go out to do my book signing afterwards and you say hello and you have not only a scar to show where it went in. Yeah. But a glass eye as well. Yes, that does some fun things. Well, okay. used to when I was immature. Yeah. <laughs> well, immature means uh, this was uh, this happened to you when you were 11, I think. Yes, it? 11. Where, why was a javelin in your day? Um, I was visiting. I bludged a day of school and was visit, visiting my future school. And I was going home, so yeah. <laughs> and then I was 
was just like... So this is your settling in date at high school. This was my visit the high school and see whether I'll like it or not day. Oh, 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 oh my God. <laughs> I still that, went. That's You still went? I still went. That's so good. Right, and so... You're just wandering around, try, having a really nervous day anyway because you're setting yeah. into big school. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Went and saw the like the measurer was my friend who I was there with. And oh, they chose javelin as an activity to do on this. It's a sports day, sports day event. Javelin yeah. shot, put discus, just in the middle of the oval as the runners are running around the edges. Yeah, and um, yeah, I was telling you I was going home. <laughs> like we're going home now. Your mum and I are leaving. <laughs> and next thing I know. Like, I got laid under a tree, which at first I was really excited about because they laid me under the tree. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, like, I just, yeah, next thing I know I was going to hospital, so. So, just because in my little cartoon head. Yeah. In my little cartoon head, yeah. you're under a tree with a javelin still sticking out of you with a well, first aider with one of them stupid donut bandages holding it in place. Did it go in and go out again? Well, we, no one's told me the truth. Maybe after this podcast what? someone at the school can tell me whether they ripped it out or what they did with it. But all I know is it went in one in the middle and came out the side. Went but, through your head. Yeah, but my face wasn't ripped off, so I don't know how my face survived getting hit in the head with a javelin because they're pretty big. Yeah, and your brain would be in the middle of It was then. a millimetre away from my brain. So Always a millimetre, isn't it? A if millimetre. It was, if it was a hair the other way, they would have bled to death. All yeah, of yeah, that. Yours yeah, was yeah. like a millimetre. A millimetre, I was told. Okay, so the javelin went through you. But you don't know if you had the javelin in you. Just hanging under- out and they chopped it, you know, sawed it down, put the donut on. Do you or remember, did you it out. black out? Yeah, so it took about 10 years to remember what it felt like when it happened because I'd always said, oh, don't oh, remember, why don't remember. To? And then all of a sudden I'm telling the story, blah, 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 as you do. And I'm like, that's right. It felt like I got hit in the head with a shot put, like someone just went bang. You'd prefer a shot put? I yeah, you'd you. probably prefer you'd a prefer shot put. you prefer it, Matt, yeah. 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 Yes. The story wouldn't be as exciting, though. And so, so also when so, – so then you go – so you go to hospital. Yeah. Obviously. Yes. Yes, I did go to hospital. My mum got the phone call saying, like, oh, your daughter's had an accident. Like, if you could just come down to the school. So my mum thought I got my period. <laughs> she just, and she gets to the school, no, she's gone off in an ambulance. So, yeah, I went off in an ambulance and spent a couple of weeks in hospital. And, like, my Oh, story, she's clearly not a nurse, your mum, or else she'd be like, just no, get her back to school. Just get her back to school. Just let her get on with it. And in my head, I'm like... I now know, as a nurse, that we get given a lot of drugs when you have an injury yeah, and it's, like, life-threatening and stuff. Um, I know now that I was in intensive care and all these other things, but for, like, the next 10, 15 years, people are like, oh, what happened when you found out? And I'm like, I just, like, was happy that I could still perv on boys. Yeah. Yeah, and that was my story. I told that to, like, one of the magazines that you write in and get cash for when I was a teenager. Oh, you sold your story. I sold my story for, like, a hundred bucks. Yeah, it was one of those ones. Oh, God, I love those magazines. Um, And I was just like, oh, yeah, and my mum read the article, and she goes, you never said that, Kelly. You, like, did not say you can still perv on boys, and I'd been telling everyone I met that story for, like, 10, 15 years. So Yeah. Yeah, got a little muddled with the with the hospital drugs, but, yeah, then just carried on the journey for... Sounds like you weren't greatly affected by this whole thing. No, well, I could still see. And it made me just that little bit more special, made me stand out from the crowd a bit. Nurses have an important role to play in working toward the prevention and early intervention of domestic violence. 
we've launched a new online learning module to assist in your work to create a safe and supportive environment for victim survivors to ask for and receive support from you as a nurse. The link's in the show notes or head over to our online store to find out more. Coming up next time, in a couple of weeks on Nursing Australia, move over Judge Judy. There's a nurse turned lawyer in the house. Nikki Eastwood to chat all things nursing and the law. Time to myth bust, time to debunk those rumours, time to upskill your practice and get some insights into what it's like from a legal aspect of nursing in Australia. Remember, if you are listening to the Nursing Australia podcast right now on Apple or Google Podcasts, please don't forget to tap the subscribe button. And on Spotify, click to follow and give us a positive rating. We'd really appreciate the more followers, the more nurses and healthcare professionals out there who can access the latest happenings in Australian primary healthcare. Once again, thank you for joining us. I'm Matthew St. Ledger. I'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Nursing Australia.